at the turn of the fifth century, St. Augustine said, if you believe what you like in the gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. It's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. In other words, if you look at the New Testament and what it says about Jesus, and you choose which parts of that Jesus to believe and which to reject, the end product says more about you than it does Jesus. For many people, whatever Jesus they have or whatever Jesus they've come to reject, it is a Jesus of their own making. It is a wax-nosed Jesus. And the Jesus of our own making is never the right Jesus. It is never the Jesus of the Bible. It's our responsibility, not just as Christians, but as human beings, to wrestle with the Jesus who is, the Jesus of history, the Jesus of Scripture. And one of the ways we do that is by going to those gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which record his birth, his life, his teaching, his death and resurrection. And another way of doing that is actually by going to the scripture that came before those. The Old Testament, in many ways, pointed ahead to the one that was to come, the one who would be the answer. And though the Old Testament's descriptions of this one who would come were not always clear to those who were writing them down. We can look back with what we know of the New Testament and see with remarkable clarity what God had put there long ago about who Jesus is, about what he's like and why he came and why we need a savior and what God is up to in all of this. And so today we turn to the book of Malachi, a book of the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, which points ahead to the coming Savior, and it confronts the people's sin, showing them their need for a Savior. It doesn't present to us a sentimental Jesus, a baby Jesus with warm Christmas greetings. It doesn't show us merely a story of wonder, of an expecting couple finding no room at the inn, having a baby in a manger, and then happily and peacefully looking up at the sky afterwards with smiles on their faces. That's how our Christmas plays go. But the Bible records for us, whether Old or New Testament, it records for us a Christmas story that is far more complex and is far more confrontational. The full Christmas story is far more offensive to our natural sensibilities, if we'll let it. But that's actually where the true amazement and the otherworldly kind of awe comes in. Malachi, as I said, is the last book of the Old Testament. It is the last prophet of the Old Testament. And it not only points ahead to the coming of Jesus, but the prophet that precedes him. And as I said, Malachi, as he unfolds these promises, is also exposing the people's specific sins. There are six rounds of disputes happening in the book of Malachi, disputes between God and his people. Is that a surprising thing to you that God would have a dispute with his people? Or that God would have a dispute with you this morning? You might be surprised by it. You may object to it at first but hopefully not stay there. In each of these disputes in Malachi, God first brings a charge against his people and then they protest with a question and then God answers their question with more evidence or with more rebuke or with a plea or with promises and sometimes promises of blessing, sometimes promises of threat. So last week we looked at Malachi 1 and 2, the first half of the book. And I said it could be summarized as going through the motions. God's people at this time had been returned to their land and the temple had been rebuilt. They were waiting on God to do more. 
And in the meantime, they were going through the motions of being God's people. It's relevant for us today, especially as we go through the month of December. Many of us are going through the motions. While these people were going through the motions, they doubted God's love for them. They polluted God's worship. We saw last week they were weary of the Lord's commands. They divorced good wives for heathen wives. They wondered where God was. And if he was there, whether he was just. That's where we left off last week. The end of chapter 2, look at that, verse 17. You've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now let's read the rest of Malachi, chapter 3 in 4, which we might call getting ready. Behold, I send my messenger, chapter 3 says, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside for my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before them of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked." For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, 
I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with utter destruction. Well, that's the end of the Old Testament. A surprise ending, isn't it? There are lots of surprises in Malachi. Shocking things are said about God. The first is that God is wearied. We saw that last week at the end of chapter 2. We saw it in the question they asked. How have we wearied you? And God says, well, by asking, where is the God of justice? We saw that question last week, but we haven't yet looked at the answer, which flows into chapter 3 and following. Remember from last week, it seemed as though God had disappeared. It seemed as though God's justice was absent. It seemed as though evil was blessed as they were a people in their own land, just a parcel of it though, and under Persian rule. Where is God? And where is the justice of God? Well, chapter 3 answers that. God is not unjust. He has not disappeared. God is wearied, but he's about to act. He's about to act. God is coming, chapter 3 tells us. God is coming to his temple. This is one of the things that in Malachi's day, the people, people thought was missing from God's plan, from what God should be doing. And, and in some ways, they were, they were right. The temple had been rebuilt, but God had not entered into it like he did when the first temple was built. Second Chronicles 7 describes the fire of God that came down in Solomon's temple and dwelt among it. But this second temple was, was built and, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. And God tells these people, I am coming to my temple. And you'll know it by the messenger that comes before. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, the New Testament makes very clear who this messenger is. Mark's gospel account begins by quoting Malachi 3.1. And then it introduces us to that messenger, John the Baptist. Turn over to Mark 1, or just listen to it if you'd like, but let me read a few verses from Mark 1 to remind us how that begins and how it's relevant for Malachi. Mark begins with the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, he says Isaiah, but it's actually quoting Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, but the big prophet gets the lead, you could say, or the headline. Here's the Malachi 3, 1 quote. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And then here's the Isaiah quote. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way before the Lord, make his path straight. Next verse, John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in all the country of Judea, in all Jerusalem, were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came. He came. This is the beginning of the good news, the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God. And he comes, and he comes to his temple. Later on in Mark's story, Jesus literally comes to the temple, and he enters it, chapter 11. But he doesn't fill it with glory like, like God did that first temple when it was first built. Jesus came to the temple and he looked around. The next day he came back and he turned over tables. He yelled at religious leaders. 
He came to his temple in judgment because he himself is a new and better temple. And that old one was coming down. It was all done. Jesus not only entered that physical temple that one day, but more importantly, when he died, he entered the heavenly temple with a perfect sin-removing sacrifice. This is said so many different ways in Hebrews. Here's a few. Hebrews 9 says that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. Or verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now back to Malachi 3. We know from the rest of the Bible, from what we read in the New Testament, that this is how God will refine, how he will purify, to use the language of Malachi 3. This is how our offerings to the Lord can be pleasing to him, only because Christ made the perfect sacrifice. He made us priests, and he carved a way out for us to go to him and to to join him in worship. Notice that Malachi in verses 3 and 4 is using the terminology of his day to communicate a purified worship that was otherworldly and unthinkable because he couldn't have imagined Christ as the perfect sacrifice like we know. He couldn't have imagined that God's people through Christ's sacrifice could then be priests who can offer to God anything if it's done in faith. They can do this anywhere if it's done in faith. They can do this all the time. They couldn't have imagined that. And that's why in the Old Testament so often they speak of the day in which we live in the terms that they knew in their day but would become somewhat obsolete or transformed in light of what came with Christ. So in Hebrews 13, we're told that through him, Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Speaking his name is worship, it's sacrifice, it's offering. Not just that, but We're told, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It's through him that just being generous with each other can be worship. It can be sacrifice and offering. Back to Malachi once again. The people asked, where is God? When will he come? When will he do all that he promised? And God says, he will come. God will come. Now notice, it says God will come. And then it says the Lord will come in verse 1. And then it says the messenger of the covenant, he is coming. You actually have three different people here in verse 1. You have God speaking in first person. This is God the Father. You have a messenger who prepares the way before God's coming. That's John the Baptist. And then there's this messenger of the covenant who is also the Lord in whom you delight. He is coming. That is Jesus. Jesus came. God came. And when God comes like this, He will not only purify worship by the offering of himself, but it will also be judgment. Did you hear that in what we've read? It'll be judgment when God comes. It won't be a good thing for these people. It's explicit in verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, liars, oppressors. 
they'd been asking, where's the God of justice? Because they assumed that the injustices were all out there. But they themselves were actually unjust. Unjust to God, unjust with each other. They had thought that it was the Persian army that was the problem of injustice in this world. And they thought it was unjust that they would be small and insignificant and, and, and weak at this time. They thought that's what God needed to come and fix. They didn't realize that if God had showed up to fix things, they would be first on his list. And so this is a common theme in the prophets where the people want God's end time judgment to come, not realizing that at this point it would include them, not just the nations around them. Like in Amos 5, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Now at this point, you might be scratching your head and a little confused whether I have been and am now referring to Jesus' first coming or his second coming. The day of the Lord sounds like second coming. And yet, John the Baptist preceded Jesus. What's going on here? Which one is it? Well, I think Malachi is teaching us about Jesus' first coming and his second coming. I think it's telling us about how the time, it's telling us how God will restore worship and purify a people, and yet will come in judgment and no one can stand. It's both of those at the same time. Not one and then the other. We Christians sometimes make the mistake of talking about Jesus' first coming as one for salvation, but then he'll come a second time and that one will be for judgment. But it's more accurate to think of his first coming being for salvation and judgment. And his second coming, it being for salvation and judgment. Just watch for those. That, that language is there in the New Testament as each of them is described. Jesus is coming. And his first coming was a kind of judgment. It was a confrontation, was it not? In Jesus' teaching, he was confronting sinners. He was confronting empty religion. He was confronting religious leaders in their hypocrisy. He was confronting demons as he cast them out. He confronted Herod in his birth. He confronted Roman and Jewish leaders in his trial. The cross was a kind of judgment upon them. His parables, remember, were spoken in hidden ways so that some would get the parables and others wouldn't. It was judgment. Jesus has already been, as it says in verse 5 of Malachi 3, he's already been a swift witness against those who do not fear God. So Christmas, you should know, is far more than a story of wonder. It is not just about a sweet baby Remember Mary's prayer in Luke 1 when she found out that she was carrying the Messiah in her womb? It was a prayer of consolation. It was also a prayer about Jesus' confrontation. Listen to parts of it again from Luke 1 where Mary said, He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. All good and positive so far. But then she says, he has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. She saw Jesus is coming. God's working as both confrontation and consolation, just like Simeon did. The priest in Luke 2, when he laid eyes on Jesus, he said, this is the consolation of Israel. This is salvation. He said, this is a light 
for revelation to the Gentiles. And yet he also said, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many. A sword will pierce your heart. And yet, Jesus in Malachi is the messenger of the covenant. And that's a good thing. That's a good covenant, not a bad covenant. He's the mediator of a new covenant. He's the guarantee of a better covenant. And so in Malachi's time, God was wearied with their questions and their doubts about his justice. But he was about to act and he did act. He did come. And he will come again. And when he comes again, the question for you is, will it be consolation? Or will he come in confrontation? Will it be your rescue? Or will it be retribution? Will he come to judge? Or will he come to save? We can ask today, where's the God of justice when all seems wrong? Well, look back. Remember, he came. Remember, he's coming again. He will make it all right in the end. There's another surprising thing about God in Malachi. Secondly, God is robbed. He's robbed First, God calls on his people to return to him in verse 7. And he reminds them of the reason that they have not been consumed. Verse 6, see that? It's because I, the Lord, do not change. He reminds them that they are children of Jacob, verse 6. Chosen, loved people. And he also reminds them, in verse 7, how it's gone for them over the years. They do not change either, but it's not a good thing in their case. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have, have not kept them. And so he calls on them to change, to return, what we call in the New Testament, to repent. And how do they respond? Well, they say, how shall we return? Which isn't tell us how, but what are you talking about? We don't need to return. We never left. What do you mean, repent? Repent of what? You have to do something wrong in order to repent. And God answers them. And he could have said any number of things about what they needed to return from. He could have simply repeated anything that he's already said before through the prophet Malachi. Their guilt has been firmly established, but God points to an additional way, a concrete way in which they're in need of returning to God. It's that they rob God. They rob God. And when God tells them this, they protest again. How have we robbed you? God answers, in your tithes and contributions. God's people in the Old Testament were to give a tenth of everything for the temple, for the priesthood, for the sacrificial system, for the worship of God. They were also to make various offerings for special needs or for the poor. But the whole nation, God says, had been skimping on this or neglecting it completely. They wondered whether God saw. God saw. God doesn't show them a bill. God says they were robbing him. He robbed God. It's a shocking thing. It's an unusually strong word here for robbing. It's not the usual word for stealing. This is like plundering. They pillaged their God by not giving to him what was his and what he commanded them to give. The more amazing thing is not that God is robbed, but that he wants to bless. God is robbed, but wants to bless. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God says he would give untold blessings if they would give to him. He would remove curses if they would just give to him. 
Verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for you. The devourer is the locust. The locust was a symbol and sometimes literally a, a curse. It was one of the 10 plagues. God says, I'll remove that curse from you. I'll keep the devourer from eating your foods. And then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight. Just as God promised to Abraham and his offspring that they would be in a land, a blessed land, they would be blessed and they would be a blessing to the nations around them. All this for his covenant people. They are his covenant people. And it's important to remember that here because covenant means responsibility, but it also means relationship. God doesn't promise here in verse 10 to bless them because they will give to him in a sense that he can be bought or that blessings can be paid for. God doesn't need their money or yours. He wants a people who are wholeheartedly his. So wholeheartedly his, it's reflected in their wallets and in their crops. But it's about the heart. Still today, our money reveals where our hearts are. Jesus taught us that. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we give money to God in order to get money from God, well, then what we're after is really more money, isn't it? Verse 10 has led some people astray in this way. The TV preachers often talk from a verse like this about how you give to God and it will come back to you a certain percentage more. But you see how Malachi 3 can't be turned into a system for money multiplication or else money is the goal, not God. And that's what God was addressing, that he is not their God. He was calling them to return to him. And when they had returned to him, God knew they should know as well it would be reflected in their giving to him. Listen to how Nehemiah 10 talks about the people's giving at a time just a little bit before Malachi. We don't know how many years before, but a little bit before Malachi. The people then gave so freely, so willingly. It says, we also take on ourselves the obligation for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Two chapters later, their resolve proves true. Again, hear how free and generous and joyful their giving was. Let it be an example for us. In Nehemiah 12, it says, they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of all the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers. 
Isn't that beautiful? You say, well, what's the point, though? That's about a temple. That's about a priesthood. We're not priests. That's not, we don't have a temple. We're, we're not a nation today. Yes, it's true. The New Testament actually doesn't prescribe for us a tithe or a tenth for our giving. But it's hard to imagine that for most Americans, much less than a tenth of their income would actually be sacrifice. And that's one of the things the New Testament does prescribe for our giving. Not a percentage, but principles. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 have these principles that our giving should be sacrificial, our giving should be regular or systematic or planned. Our giving should be worshipful, and it should be joyful. These are the ways in which we give, not just in our hearts, but our hearts flowing through our wallets, we could say. That's how we partner in the spread of the gospel in this world. Philippians 1.6 talks about that kind of partnership. Paul's partnership with the Philippian church was like a business partnership. Oh, filled with love, yes. But it was financial. They'd made a financial commitment to support Paul in, in the spreading of the gospel in the world. The New Testament tells us about supporting pastors and teachers to free them up from outside work so that they might labor in preaching and teaching. We're to together fund things like this building, which isn't required of every church to have, but we use it. We've decided to have one. We've decided to put our money together and, and uh, well, get a, get a loan, a big loan, but uh, we're making payments on that loan. We're doing it together. And in all these ways, we're not just giving to a church. We're giving to God. We're recognizing that it's all his we're recognizing the fact that we are his and he is ours. Thirdly, we see that God is maligned. In verse 13 and following, he's maligned. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we shall call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Isn't it crazy that God subjects himself to this? I mean, you'd think after all their questioning, their protesting, their sniveling, God comes to them with a rebuke to, in love, get them to return. They respond with questions and accusations. When he gives them evidence, they respond with more questions, with further accusation. It is crazy that God has so hitched himself to sinners to ride the ups and downs and ins and outs of their backwards, twisted lives. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need us. Why does he do it? And the answer is, who knows? But it's remarkable, isn't it? You, wouldn't you expect God to just ball it up? Uh, maybe after their fifth question? Maybe after their sixth question of accusation against God? You'd think he'd just say, that's it, I'm done. It's been over a thousand years now. I'm so sick of this. You people, no more people. And he doesn't. Because he's after something. And that's shown when we get to verse 16 and it turns here. God is maligned by some, but not by all. Not by all. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They got together. They encouraged each other. They confronted each other. They comforted each other. They spoke with one another. That's what God's people should always do. 
And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord. Not because he forgets and he needs a book of remembrance because he forgets, but but because God condescends to our level, he communicates to us with things we get, like books of remembrance. He writes our names in his diary. He doesn't literally have a diary. He doesn't need one. But it's as if we're written down in his book of remembrance, his book of life, as it's called in the New Testament. And God says here in verse 17, they will be mine. In that day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. He'll do this for those who fear him. What does that mean, fear him? Do we fear him enough? Is it a God we worship that wants us to tremble and quake, and then he'll be good to us? Well, no, not quite. Sinclair Ferguson defined the fear of God as that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. It's not enough to say the fear of God in the Bible is just respect, but neither is it dread or terror. There's relationship involved. And this kind of fear isn't something of the Old Testament and not in the New, but it, this is actually the heartbeat of the New Covenant, of God's plan and his relationship with his people forever and ever. The people had complained, what's the point of serving God? What's the profit for us? What does it really get us? And God says in verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. In the end, it will be clear, even if in the meantime, it isn't always clear. Now, from one angle, it should always be clear who are God's people and who are not God's people. God's people should serve God, and those who are not God's people don't serve God. That should be clear enough. But in some ways, it may not be clear until the end, until there's a reckoning, until there's a vindication. It may at times appear as though it's hard to serve God and easy to be wicked that you're blessed for doing bad and persecuted for doing good. But that is not forever. That is not the final say. We're not to assess things about God in his plan by looking around at his world, but by hearing his word, assessing reality based on what he has said. And in the end, he says there will be vindication and there will be reward in the end, it will be worth it all. Praise God. Fourthly, we see God is coming. Chapter 4 returns us to where chapter 3 began with God's coming. What will it be like when he comes? Well, once again, we see it's not the same thing for everyone. So in verse 1 of chapter 4, there's one implication of that day when he comes. In verse 2, there's another implication. Verse 1 says, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. But verse 2, but for you who fear my name... The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. He is coming. How will he come for you? And we can say from our vantage point here, not just that he is coming, but he has come. God is coming and coming again. Like two mountain peaks viewed from a distance away, which look like one, 
But then once you get past one and you're in between, you can see clearly that there are two. So it was with Jesus' first coming and his second coming. The prophets of old looked and only saw one mountain of God's coming. But with the coming of Christ the first time, we see there are some things in the Old Testament that are still to come. The kingdom is now and it's not yet. He has come and he's coming again. And he comes in salvation and in judgment. When he comes again, it will be burning like an oven, consuming all the arrogant and evildoers. But for those who fear his name, that same sun, it burns up some and it's healing for others. In fact, just look at the rich language of verse 2. The son of righteousness which could be a person, some translations capitalize sun here, or it could be a time, it could be a day, a dawning, the sun of righteousness. It will rise and it will have healing in its beams. The sun's beams will not burn, but heal. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Imagine being a calf in a, a dark stall, a dank stall for a whole season. Then maybe spring comes and you're released to the green, to the pasture, and the sun hits your back. You would dance and leap. That's the picture. That sun has come, and that sun is coming even more in the future. One final word from Malachi, verses 4 and following. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him. Verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. They show up again in the New Testament. Do you remember that? When Jesus was on the mount, it's called the Mount of Transfiguration because his glory was exposed to a few of the disciples that day. Jesus was there with Moses and Elijah, those two pillars of the Old Testament. And that was clearly showing that the mantle was more than being passed. Jesus not only had their approval... He was greater than them. The Father spoke from heaven. That's my beloved son. Listen to him. Not Moses. Not Elijah. Their time's done. That experience on the mountain that day got the disciples thinking about Elijah and Malachi 4. So in Matthew 17, they asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come before Messiah comes? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of, you guessed it, John the Baptist. Malachi 3.1 said a messenger is coming before God comes, and and then Mark quotes that at the beginning of his gospel account, then introduces us to John the Baptist, the messenger. Now here in Malachi 4, the messenger is called Elijah. Not because John the Baptist was actually the old Elijah up and alive and around again, but because, because God gave him the spirit and power of Elijah. He was an Elijah-like figure calling for repentance in a nation that was away from its God in unfaithful times. He had the spirit of Elijah. That's what the angel told John the Baptist's father before he was born. Listen to this, Luke 1. The angel said, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You'll call his name John, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him 
in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. And it was right after his birth that Zechariah, John's father, said this about the child. You'll be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide their feet into the way of peace. This is Christmas. This is Jesus. He's not a simple character in the story of God, is he? He's glorious. He's God himself. He has come. He is coming again. And so we wait. We wait for him. We wait for him, trusting his timing, trusting his justice. We wait for him, returning to him when he calls us back, not debating with him, not questioning him. We give to him. His lordship is shown in all of life. We serve him without complaint. We're to fear him. We're his, and we're to speak to each other while we wait. And those who fear the Lord, we speak to each other about fearing the Lord, and we encourage one another with these words. We remind each other, remind ourselves of what God has said, what he said to Moses, what he said to David, what he said through them and through the prophets, what he said to the apostles. And we remember that he has reconciling power. He can reconcile fathers and sons. He comes with healing in his wings. Have you been healed by him? Are you longing for more? Are you longing for that day when the sun of righteousness will most fully rise with all of its healing power and we shall leap like calves from the stalls? We will jump through the roof with the glory and goodness that we get to experience. We don't deserve it. He does it for his glory. It's amazing that it's for our good as well. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus. To say that seems small. Of course, we thank you. We praise you. We bow in our hearts before you with awe and wonder at what you have done for us and what you're doing for others. Again, we pray for those who are with us who don't yet know this healing that comes with Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. We pray today, Lord, they would. We pray we Christians, Lord, would do what you call us to do here in Malachi and like them, that we would not just cling to you, but we would also wait on you. And that we would wait with great expectancy, with great faith, with great perseverance. That we would wait for what you have for us in your timing, in your ways. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to enjoy it, to rejoice in it, to be changed by it. What healing you bring. We thank you. Lord Jesus, and pray in your name. Amen.